our scripture to set the tone for our study of Revelation is taken this morning from Psalm chapter 29, verses 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and His temple everywhere says glory. In our continuing series of understanding current events in the light of Bible prophecy, we have discovered that there are actually two stages on which the final events of time are going to be played out. There's a stage in heaven, and there's a stage here on the earth. The next great prophetic event that we discover in Scripture will be the rapture of the church. And that will serve as a curtain call for action to begin on both the stage in heaven and the one that is here upon the earth. The current events that we see day by day reveal the preparation that's taking place for those two stages in which that drama is going to begin. In our earlier study, we actually read the script for that which is going to take place on that stage in heaven following the rapture of the church. We saw Act 1 will feature what is identified in Scripture as the judgment seat of Christ. And that it will provide commendations to those who have lived during the church age for the stewardship that God has assigned to them as they live out the design that God has for each of us. There's going to be commendation that's going to be given at the judgment seat of Christ. We saw also that along with the commendation, there are going to be commissions that are going to be given for every church age believer for your role in the millennial kingdom and also for your role in the eternal kingdom. Each one of us will have an assigned uh, uh, role, and that will be based upon uh, our stewardship as we live out life according to God's design for us too. Act 2, we saw on that stage in heaven, will be the marriage of the Lamb to the church. Christ as the bridegroom, and the church as the bride of Christ, and that will feature the consummation of that oneness that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ as a result of salvation. The union that 
manifested is going to be exhibited in a time of praise and worship that is going to occur in heaven. And we saw that. And then we saw the seven sealed scroll that contains the script for the drama that is going to be played out here upon the earth. So we've reviewed that which takes place in heaven. And now we are in the process of examining that which is going to occur here upon the earth during what the Bible describes as a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, as we went through that script, we got a brief overview of the judgments that God is about to visit upon the earth and what might be described as catastrophic evangelism. That is, evangelism by disaster as God brings one disaster upon another, upon those that are here upon the earth and uh, walks among them in judgment while offering a grace, salvation to whosoever will. So before those disasters began, we had an interruption in the text in Revelation in which 144,000 redeemed Jews were commissioned as evangelists. And we saw that that commissioning uh, and uh, the result of their ministry in the latter part of that chapter, as we saw a great multitude that had been redeemed during the seven years of judgment here upon the earth. It's a large number, but it's a small number in comparison to those who reject the gospel even in that time of judgment and uh, must then deal with God in an awesome way. Now, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we were introduced to what is described as trumpet judgments. And the beginning of that uh, was the opening of the seventh seal, you remember, to introduce these tremendous judgments that are going to come upon the earth. And so awesome are the judgments that it shut up the worship in heaven and silenced heaven For the space of half an hour, there was no sound at all in that period of time as they viewed the awesomeness of what is about to take place. We saw that it resulted then in some persistent preparation last week that is being uh, uh, visualized uh, in our newscasts and in our newspapers uh, in the current events today we see how quickly that stage uh, is being prepared and the things are being formulated there and there is a persistence in preparation. And then we saw along with that, there was the prevailing prayers of the saints and then that was followed by the predicted punishment that is going to be visited upon the unbelievers. So today we come to the 10th, and the 11th chapters of the book of Revelation. And just as we had to break, had a break between the 6th and the 7th seals, there is a break as well and some dialogue between the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgments. The 
before the seventh trumpet sounds, uh, there is an interruption with what we call a parenthesis of explanation that John writes into the text and so that we might understand what is transpiring. So look with me this morning then at that uh, 10th and 11th chapters. We won't go through the entire 11th chapter, but through this parenthesis of explanation as to what John is seeing. Verse 10 of chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. So, not like the previous angel, this mighty angel is not identified by any name. We have to examine the description that is given and the work that is assigned in order to understand who this angel is. And in that examination, we determine that this angel is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we some say, but he's not an angel. What he's referred to as the angel in a number of passages, the angel of Jehovah uh, in places in the Old Testament, uh, his pre-incarnate, that is before his human birth, he is referred to in his visitations with men as Christophanes. In Isaiah chapter 63 verse 9, he is called the angel of his presence. In Exodus 3, 2, he is called the angel of the Lord. And John sees him come down from heaven when Christ was here upon the earth. He said, I came down from heaven. And after his resurrection, he was taken back up into heaven and he promises to come again. Now our problem with identifying an angel as the Lord himself is the area of transliteration versus translation. Let me explain that. To transliterate a word, we take it in its original language and give it English spelling and pronunciation and bring that word into the English language. The word angelos is brought into the English language with the word angel. But if we translate that word, instead of transliterate it, we find a meaning in English that corresponds to the meaning in Greek. And the meaning in English and in Greek is messenger. So when we see the word angel, the context is going to have to determine whether we're talking about a celestial messenger or whether we're talking about a human messenger. And as is the case in this sense, we're talking then about the Lord Jesus Christ pictured here as the mighty angel, as a messenger. Now we can discern that not only by the terms that are used in Scripture, but by His appearance as well. His face was, as it were, the sun. John said in chapter 1, uh, verse 16, 
that his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus uh, and Peter, James, and John had that visitation from uh, Elijah and Moses on the mountaintop prior to the crucifixion of Christ, we are told that his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength, and his face did shine as the sun. Malachi describes him as the sun of righteousness. The account here says not only uh, about his face as the sun, but his feet were as pillars of fire. In chapter 1, verse 15, John said, His feet are like fine brass, as if they had burned in a furnace. So, we're identifying this mighty angel as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, this mighty messenger. And throughout the book of Revelation, He takes on a number of different roles. We saw Him as a lamb that was slain and revived. We see Him riding on a white horse, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We see Him in a variety of different images as He brings the message that God wants us to understand Excuse me. during this particular study. Let's look at His clothing in the description. He is clothed with a cloud. The word cloud is used uh, to describe a garment of divine presence throughout the Old Testament and always associated with the work of God. The Lord guided Israel, you remember, in their 40-year wilderness wanderings. He guarded them during the day by a pillar of cloud and by night a pillar of fire. The Lord appeared in a cloud when Israel murmured against God. Remember when they got homesick for Egypt and and forgot how bad it was there and could only think of returning there. And they began to murmur and God brought a plague upon them. We see that the Lord appeared in a cloud. At Mount Sinai, He descended upon the mountain as a thick cloud. And when the table of commandments uh, uh, were replaced, you remember um, somebody said what was the occasion in which one man broke all ten of the commandments. Well, it was when Moses threw the tablets down and broke them uh, after the Lord had inscribed them uh, with His very finger. uh, He broke them and so He had to replace them. God replaced them. And we are told that the Lord descended in a thick cloud. When the tabernacle had been completed, the Lord descended into the tabernacle in a cloud. And then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, we are told, in Exodus chapter 40. That cloud was called the cloud of the Lord. And uh, we, we find uh, the Lord appearing then in a number of places in that manner. 
In Leviticus chapter 14, verse 2, God said, I will appear in the cloud on the mercy seat in the tabernacle and temp, and then later the temple. So the cloud was associated with both direction from God and a manifestation or a clothing, if you will, of His deity. The psalmist identifies the cloud as being characteristic of the Almighty. Clouds and darkness are round about Him, Psalms 97 says. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice out of, out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Christ ascended to heaven in a cloud, as a cloud received Him, according to Acts chapter 1. When He spoke of His return, He said, Then shall you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In Revelation chapter 1, said, Behold, He cometh with clouds. So clouds have often been used as a clothing of deity, and this phrase in chapter 10 strongly suggests then that this strong angel is none other than the Lord Himself. Notice a further affirmation of that is a rainbow was upon His head. That's an important consideration. In chapter 4, we saw a rainbow around about the throne. And you remember the appearance of the rainbow We had an emphasis upon emerald as the eternity and eternalness of God was being shown. But as we have illustrated in the past, the various colors of the rainbow identify each one of them, one of the attributes of God. Seven divine attributes that are revealed by the rainbow. And here a rainbow is upon his head and worn as a crown. None other than deity could have such a manifestation and further documents and establishes the reality that the clothing of the mighty angel identifies Him as the Lord Jesus Christ. We look then in chapter 10, verse 2, at the actions of the angel. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Now, there's no purpose stated in the text for this action to occur. We have to figure that out by looking at the context and seeing how it plays out in time. We do know that the sea represents Gentile nations and that the land represents Israel. And so we see... He has his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the land, identifying the context of the entire world. We find God said to Joshua, Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you as I said unto Moses. 
the mighty angel is described by Joshua as the Lord of all the earth. Christ came in order that He might put all things under His feet, according to Psalm chapter 8, which is then quoted in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. The clothing and the actions of the angel identify the Lord Jesus Christ. But hear the cry of the mighty angel in verses 3 and 4. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, John says, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Oh, sure, don't you just love that? used to love in the early TV days where they had all these uh, uh, series of, of programs and that get right to a pitched fever of anticipation say, to be continued next week. Well, we don't even have that continuation from us here next week. John hears the seven thunders, the voice of the mighty angel, the voice of the Lord, and when he's about to write it down, he's told, seal it up. You're not to utter these things. And we have no record of what he heard. Much like the Apostle Paul, when he was caught up to the third heaven, he said, oh, I would love so much to tell you what I saw there. But the Lord has restrained me and will not allow me to tell you what I saw and what took place there. That anticipation waits for us. In Scripture, the roar of a lion is symbolic of impending and imminent judgment that is about to come upon the individual or upon the earth. And so we have that. The word thunder also represents judgments as we see. Hosea prophesied of this in his prophecy. He said, They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. Joel also in his writing makes record, The Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Amos, the prophet, wrote, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem, and the inhabitants of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. A lion frequently roars just as he is about to pounce upon his prey. And we are having a sign of warning of judgment that is about to come. When he cried, then seven thunders uttered their voices. We have 
many references to the voice of God and the, the sound of thunder uh, throughout the Scripture. Uh, the, the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it uh, when uh, uh, Jesus uh, was visited by the Father and He said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They said it thundered as they attempt to describe the voice of God. When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, John said, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. And so he was stopped from writing what he had heard. And uh, of course that creates a lot of speculation on our part. Uh, I simply warn you against the danger of speculation. Uh, When the Bible is silent on it, uh, we uh, don't have a great deal of alternative but to understand that in God's time, He will reveal those things to us. So they were sealed up and not to be revealed uh, at the time as John records this. In chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, we have the oath of the mighty angel. He says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. And he swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So after the seven thunders, uh, the mighty angel then took an oath. Now, man is forbidden to take an oath while we were here upon the earth because we can't control the factors about that oath and about what tomorrow might bring. So we are told to swear not, to take an oath not by the land or by God or by whatever it might be because we don't have control over that. But the mighty angel has control and uh, is justified in taking an oath, making a commitment. And the commitment uh, that is revealed uh, uh, then uh, is attested to by an oath from the mighty angel. The word mystery is one that we have seen in Scripture from time to time, and especially in our study of the book of Colossians, we saw the mysteries of Christ, the mysteries, the mysteries, the mysteries, and we recognize that that word is musterion in the Greek, and it means uh, information that is known only to those that are in the organization. And as it related to the church, it related to doctrine that is known only in the church age. Now, we need to remember as we're working through these accounts in Revelation, this is the end of the age of Israel. This is not the church. 
the church has been raptured and is in heaven and is viewing these things from there. And so the language and the terminology must relate to the Old Testament concept uh, and to Israel. To understand that, then we uh, will be in a position so that we can better interpret the things that are going on. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 48, we have the unfaithful steward saying, My Lord delayeth His coming, and so I won't give myself over to the task or the assignments that He has given me. He delayeth His coming. And uh, uh, the others, also other passages of Scripture, especially in Peter chapter 3, He said that people will be scoffers and they will say, where is the promise of His coming? And um, so in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we saw that when He opened the fifth seal, He saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony that they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost Thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. It was said unto them that they should rest a little season with their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And so here the mighty angel simply announces there's going to be no further delay. The time for these actions is now no longer a delay of time. We're told he had a little book in his hand. The voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth And I went unto the angel and said, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be sweet as honey in thy mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, John says, and I ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So John tells us that the mighty angel had a little book and the book was opened and uh, the voice that spoke said, go take the book. So John went and said, give me the little book. And the mighty angel said, well, take it and eat it and it will make your belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. So John said, he ate the little book And he tells us that while it was in his mouth, it was as sweet as honey, but as soon as he had eaten it, his belly was bitter. What does all that mean? Why would John be instructed to eat the book? Well, of course, God's Word has frequently been referred to as food. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jeremiah the prophet said, The words were found, and I did eat them, and they were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called 
by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. A psalmist in Psalm 119 said, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yet sweeter than honey to my mouth. We might recall that Ezekiel had a similar situation to that of John, and we find that recorded in Ezekiel chapter 2, where he says, And when I I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book therein, and he spread it before me, and it was written without and within, and there was written lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat that thou that, that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the roll, and he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, fill thy bowels with the roll that I give thee, that then did I eat, and in my mouth it was as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, Go get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with them my words unto thee. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah wrote, He filled me with bitterness. And so, John ate the book. It was sweet in his mouth, and yet it left a bitterness in the belly as he identifies the judgments that are written within the book. The mighty angel then commissions John to take that which he has eaten and preach it. He said, Thou must prophesy again before many people and nations and tongues and kings. We do well to feed upon the Word and then to share its message, bitter to some, a hope and sweetness to others, dependent upon their response to the message in the Word of God. In chapter 11, in verses 1 through 13, then we are introduced to two witnesses. John says, There was given unto me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein, But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So again we have the mention of the temple of God and the altar, the court, and the holy city. So we're back identifying once again the affirmation that we're talking about the completion of the age of Israel. This is Jewish terminology. I'll take that for an amen. (laughs) Talking about Jewish terminology and the events that are recurring here then are the final events of the Jewish administration. This chapter through verse 14 is a continuation then of the parenthesis that began back in chapter 10 verse 1 between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. The background of chapter 11 essentially is the nation of Israel is seen in unbelief. As these things are unfolding, we need to be reminded that 
Israel's restoration has has occurred to an extent, but it's in unbelief. It's astounding to see the numbers of those that are in Israel today that identify themselves as atheists instead of the chosen people of God. Because they are there in unbelief. And during the tribulation, the agreement between the dictator of the revived Roman Empire and uh, the false prophet of Israel uh, is done in unbelief. And oh yeah, they'll build the temple and the temple will be reestablished. But uh, uh, it's in unbelief that they sign a treaty uh, with a very sinister political leader. Uh, Daniel gives us in his ninth chapter information about this where he's going to promise them peace and protection and establish a seven-year treaty. But remember, three and a half years into that treaty, he breaks the treaty. And so we are seeing the setting of the stage for that. And John is told to rise and measure the temple itself, but he's told that there is going to be the trotting down uh, by the Gentiles and by these false uh, dictators that are going to arrive uh, on the scene during that period of time. In verses 3 and 4, he said, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. We don't have it right in this text. We have mentioned it earlier and we'll be coming back to it as we get further in the book. But the 144,000 were commissioned for the first three and a half years of a seven-year period. The last three and a half years, the persecution is so severe that God tells them to get out of Dodge. Oh, well, get out of Jerusalem. And He will hide them in Edom and Moab. But God will not be without a witness. And you've got three and a half years in which these 144,000 will no longer be evangelizing. And so God sends two witnesses. And those witnesses are described. They're not given to us by name. Elijah is identified as coming uh, before the second advent of Christ, that he's going to come. And so we recognize one of these being Elijah, uh, but there is a good deal of debate because they're not named in the text as to who the other is. And of course, one of the more common things that I grew up hearing was that Enoch would be the other because the Scripture says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after death the judgment. Enoch was translated and did not see death. And Elijah was translated and did not see death. And so that's been a common thing. But as we study the Scripture and understand the dispensational structure of Scripture, 
Enoch is totally eliminated from that concept because he was not a Jew. He lived before Abraham. He lived before Isaac and Jacob. And uh, so while some speculate that it will be Elijah and Enoch, we have to rule Enoch out because this is the Jewish administration. I believe uh, that it's Moses and Elijah. Uh, Remember, the Lord took Moses off somewhere and buried him uh, so that no one uh, was able to know where he was buried. But there was a dispute and a battle between Michael the archangel and Satan over the body of Moses. Um, Of course, Michael prevailed, but Satan, in my understanding, wanted that body to prevent that body from reappearing during the tribulational period. Now, what do we do about the saying that it is appointed that a man wants to die and after death the judgment? Well, I simply point to the rapture of the church. When the church is raptured, all believers that are alive on the earth at that time will not die. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, they'll be changed to be like Christ. And so, while that general statement is appointed that a man wants to die and after death the judgment, we cannot relate that to the rapture church age believer because they're not going to experience physical death but a transformation that's going to occur. And I believe we see that same thing with Moses. The um, statement, the two olive trees and the two candlesticks, is a reference back in the book of Zechariah uh, when uh, the children of Israel came out of Babylonian captivity and returned to the land, uh, the two that were represented as the olive trees and the two candlesticks that were identified there was Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and Zerubbabel. But in this visitation, I think we can firmly see that they are Moses and Elijah. And if you look at the miracles that they perform in the last three and a half years uh, as they are the two witnesses uh, for Christ uh, during that uh, last half of the tribulation. Uh, The miracles that they did are the miracles that Moses and Elijah did, much like the miracles that Moses did uh, with the Exodus uh, being in view. Now, verse 7-10 through says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, they're going to witness for three and a half years. They're going to preach. They're dressed in sackcloth and the world uh, hates them and the world will do everything it can possibly do to kill them. But we're told, uh, and we'll be seeing more detail on that and we'll save that detail Uh, for the time that is dealt with in the book of Revelation. But uh, uh, they will, it will be impossible to harm them. And if anyone attempts to harm them, the Bible says those individuals must be destroyed by fire that issues from the mouth of these two 
prophets as they preach Christ and Him crucified and the judgments that are going to be visited upon the earth. Uh, In uh, verse 3, he says, I will give power unto my witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the the two olive trees and the two candlesticks that stand before the God of the earth. And then in verse 5 he says, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must. See that word must? He must in this manner be killed. That will be a, a documentation that God's Word is true and that these things are of God. He adds to that then, they have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now in verse 10 or 7 he says, and when they shall have finished their testimony, He's assigned the number of weeks, the number of months, the number of days that they are to testify. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and will overcome them. And these two witnesses will be killed. And their dead bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So a reference to Jerusalem being called Sodom and Egypt. And they of the people in kindreds of tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their bodies to be put into graves. And they they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and will send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. So when their work is finished, they will be able to be killed. And the beast that descends out of the bottomless pit will wage war against them and will kill them. Uh, In the east, in the Middle East, uh, it is a shame for a body to lay in the streets. And so this is done as a dishonor to these. They have tried for three and a half years to kill these people and have not been able to kill them. And now they're victorious and they turn it into a Christmas time of giving gifts to one another and celebrating around the world, leaving their bodies exposed in the street. But there's a shock about to come as the story unfolds. We find uh, then in verse 11 and, and following, and after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God enters into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies 
beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. There is a last stanza of the invitation hymn to repentance of just as I am without one plea. And we find the remnant were affrighted and they give glory to God of the heaven. Verse 14 then introduces the next stage. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So we had three woes that were pronounced earlier in our study, and two of those have passed. And that parenthesis that began of explanation back in chapter 10, verse 1, closes with verse 14. And we're prepared then to move to the seventh trumpet judgment and the third woe. In Psalm 29, we read, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Siron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and His temple everywhere says glory. Well, of course, our purpose in studying this prophecy is to help us understand what in the world is happening today in the world. Why we have seen such calamity, such disrespect for law and order, such uh, disrespect for uh, the Word of God and such immorality that is developing. Our purpose is to understand what's going on. Now the reason for our understanding what's going on, the need for that, is that we might be about the work that God has given us to do. As we receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior, we are commissioned. God has a design for each of our lives. We are given, in our earlier study, we saw spiritual gifting. Each one of us has at least one spiritual gift, sometimes a combination of gifts. We need to understand what we have in order to understand what God requires of us with that and to be alert to the circumstances. To say, well, where do I exercise my gift? How do... How do I do the Lord's work? Day by day, moment by moment, God works circumstance in our life to reveal to us what we are to be doing and where we are to be doing that and how we are to be going about that. We need to remain sensitive to what He is bringing in our lives and what we are to do in His kingdom's 
were stages are being prepared, the props are being put in place. Uh, there's the, the key actors. There's a lot going on uh, in politics today where various individuals are vying for some of the chief roles in the new world order. And we see that being structured in our very presence. There should be no fear but a, a sense of rejoicing that our we're going to see the result of that which God has revealed uh, uh, in the past. The attempts, the uh, various attempts to identify the players in this new world order change with every generation. I've been through a couple of phases uh, of seeing that change in my lifetime, and no doubt you have too as we attempt to identify the players. We simply need to know the drama and to understand our role in preparation for it and day by day, moment by moment, to be alert to what circumstance God has brought into our life that gives us the opportunity as a sojourner. Remember, we are sojourners. The word means a foreigner not living in their own country, but living alongside the locals in order to do the king's business. We need to be about his business. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart, Man believes unto righteousness, but it's with the mouth that confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The God of glory thunders. Let's hear His voice and do His work. Turn with me then to number 220 for our closing hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Thank you.